0: Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they
1: want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil e. Colonna, and this is Nashville. As a lover of vinyl records, one thing I love to do is read the album credits very carefully. If you know what to look for, you'll see tons of hidden information. The producers, the session players, where and when it was recorded. It's all cool stuff to know, but the most important part is discovering who the songwriters are. Who are the people who came up with that melody that you can't quite get out of your head? Look, It can take a lot of people in collaboration to bring a song to fruition, but it all starts with the songwriters, the ones who channel inspiration into a tune that lives forever. Later this hour, we'll meet some local songwriters and learn more about their approach to the craft and the business of writing and selling songs. But first, reporter Damon Mitchell has been with us here at WPLN News for three years. His work has touched a lot of lives here in Middle Tennessee and beyond. He's had several stories hit the national airways for NPR. He's also shared stories of behind his work here on This Is Nashville. As you may have guessed by now, we have some bittersweet news. N- Damon is moving on for a new career in Dallas, Texas, but we couldn't let him leave without talking to him one last time. Damon Mitchell, I'm excited to have you here with us. Thanks for being here, man. How's it going, Khalil? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, man? Good. Wonderful. So, you know, let's start from the beginning. How did you come to work at WPLN?
2: Um, so I I came in as a fellow. There was this program called the Emerging Voices Fellowship. Um, so I applied for that. Um, and before the fellowship ended, um, I was offered a a full-time job at the station. And that's kind of how that got started and and how I've been here for years.
1: Okay. So tell me, how did you get into journalism?
2: Um, I think I just kind of... Got into it. I know that doesn't make sense. But so I was uh, in college. I was a public relations major and we had to take a journalism class and um, I took the class and I was like, I think I could do this. And I felt kind of the uh, reporters in Detroit were just doing a a terrible job covering the city. Mm. Um, So I was just like, yeah, I'm going to try it out and see what happens. So I actually I sent my first pitch to NPR Code Switch and they picked it up. Um but I really didn't know how to be a journalist or like how to report a story so what I sent back was just like not good so they gave me like a kill fee and then um I kind of like took those notes and lessons and just literally started pitching other places and um kind of learning by traveling there okay
1: and that led you all the way to us yep so as WPLN enterprise reporter you covered a variety of topics. One, you got to cover long-term. That was the devastating flood in Waverly last August. You got to go back and keep in touch with folks in Waverly
2: over the course of the year. Tell me, what was that like for you? Um, I think it was great in the sense that I, I met a lot of cool and, and nice people in Waverly, but I think it also pushed me as a reporter. Like, I've... Um, I've never covered kind of death before and mm-hmm. like being here early on, like we had the tornado, um, the bombing, things like that. But the flood was kind of another level of, um, uh, just emotion. Um, so it was fun. I, I think I met a lot of nice people. Um, uh, but it was also, it helped me really grow as a reporter and, um, uh, just learn how to better connect with people. What'd you learn from that experience? Um, People always seem to kind of put their differences aside um, during tragedies. I I don't know if that's something I learned from it, but it it just becomes more obvious. Um, And Waverly is a small town, and pretty much everyone knows each other or knows of each other. Um, Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that everybody gets along and agrees with the same stuff. So um, I felt like it just kind of really showed how no matter what people may have been going through before the flood, like after, it just seemed like a kind of like a a, a huge family, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Were there any
1: funny stories from that experience?
2: Um, so not Waverly, but there was. So uh, I guess this is another kind of reporting trip thing. But with the, I went to Mason, Tennessee, with our healthcare reporter, Blake Farmer, Mm -hmm. and there was two things. So one, um, I had found a guy in Memphis that I was going to interview on Zoom, but I was like, hey, I'm going to be in Mason, and that's like maybe an hour away from Memphis. So uh, how about I just meet you in Memphis? So he was like, cool. So I told Blake, and I think we had just left maybe the um, county exec's office or something, interviewing him, and so Blake was like, Well, you can just go straight to Memphis, and I'll, like, take an Uber back to Mason.
3: Okay.
2: Uh, And I'd ask him, was he sure? So I didn't just leave. (laughs) Uh, But so the whole time I'm in Memphis, Blake is just, like, walking, trying to get back to Mason because there are no Ubers or Lyfts in in the town. So that was a pretty kind of funny thing. And then I also, Mason, Mason is a really small town, so we were kind of door knocking interviewing people um, and I actually walked out of the town and then uh, Blake was at this restaurant he was going to get a table for us and I was like yeah I'll be back I think soon Uh, but as I'm on the phone with him I noticed that I saw like "Welcome to Mason," like the the sound, okay. uh, the sign for cities. Okay, um, and so I was like, "Wow!" I, I literally walked out of. Ma- I don't even know if I was in Mason, like talking to people. Probably not. <laughs> but.
1: I love that. You know, so you know, some of the stories you've had the most fun reporting on have been focused on education. You shadowed elementary school teacher Lily Porter on the first day back in person of in person class at for MPS and and. MNPS students after schools had closed down through the pandemic. Let's take a listen.
2: Porter is a teacher at Schwab Elementary. It's a neighborhood school just a few miles outside of East Nashville. She begins the class with a few housekeeping rules.
4: So, you may notice at some points, if I look at you and I go like this, what does that mean? Put your mask over your nose, your over your nose right? So. I'm not trying to embarrass you or call you out. It's just a reminder, okay?
2: Next, she calls on students and has them demonstrate several dance routines.
5: My name is Alice. Yeah. yeah. And I can do this. And you can do that.
2: Then, for the first assignment, the kids share their feelings about being back inside the building.
5: How I feel about being back in Schwab is excited. How I feel being back and show up is scary. I feel good because you get to see your friends. Also, you get to learn better.
3: I feel very happy because I am sitting alone, which is the best. The reason why it is the best is because my chance of getting COVID is lowered by 10%.
2: And for Porter, she's happy but still a bit nervous teaching in person during the pandemic.
4: I don't want to scare them. I don't want to... Project any fear onto them, but I do want to make sure that they're keeping themselves and me safe too.
2: Why was this story special for you? Um, just in any, it, like anytime you get to interview kids, it's just super fun. I don't know why they're mm-hmm. just like the kid with that COVID it's Like you would, I would have never expected him to say something like that. Um, it just, it's just fun to interview kids.
1: It, it really is a blast. Um, you know, that's not the only story you did about how the pandemic impacted education for students in Nashville. In 2021, MNPS high schoolers started the year remotely and finished it in person. You had the chance to follow Brianna Howe, a senior at the Nashville School of the Arts, from the first day in person until graduation. Let's listen.
5: Well, packing up to leave school, It's to work. Just want to say... I'm proud of myself, and I really did it. I never thought I was gonna get this far, but I actually did. I'm really proud of myself. And I say, I'm out. 2021, more blessings to come. Currently outside, about to walk in for the ceremony. This is so unreal
4: proud to recommend to you the class of 2021 of the national school of the arts for graduation and for all the rights
1: and privileges that these diplomas confer Brianna Powell. that's really powerful tape that's really awesome what was that like for you reporting on this story
2: um also fun and that was uh so my, my favorite type of storytelling has been non-narrated stories so and it's really just me kind of giving someone the microphone, uh, but really I just, like the, the student, I had her just record herself on voice memos every day, and I would just send her questions, and she'd respond mm. um, through voicemails and then text it to me. Uh, so just like another one of those just fun times of like, I think this is a cool story. I, I feel like she has kind of the personality to really do it, Um but yeah, I guess I, I feel like I said fun too much. Uh-huh. It's always great to have a lot of fun. You know, you also covered
1: maternal mortality rate, the maternal mortality rate for African American women. That was your first feature here at WPLN, right? Right. What was your reflection on that work?
2: Um, I definitely learned a lot. Um, and that was like really, I guess it's something I, I was aware of, but that was my first time actually sitting down with black women and like having serious conversations about it um so it definitely kind of like made me more aware just as a a man and it it made me like want to know about solutions and things that could be done to kind of fix that issue
1: so tell me what are some of the memorable moments you'll take with you to dallas
2: um let's see so i've met All right, I'm not going to drop. I don't want to name drop, but I've met some great people here at WPLN. Um, And I think really just kind of like the times that I've hung with them and they've maybe changed my mind on some things or just helped me grow as a person. And then also like Nashville parks. Mm -hmm. I've never seen a good park until I came here. So I, I have like a new appreciation for parks. So that's definitely something that I'm going to be looking for in Dallas and taking with me. If you follow
1: Damon on social media, you'll definitely see his love for the outdoors. So tell me real quick, what do you feel you've brought to the station in your time here?
2: Um, This is my super honest answer. I, I, don't, I don't know that I brought a whole lot. I, I think I've, I've been told that maybe perspective-wise I've been – Good at kind of like bringing new ideas to the table, but I don't feel like my work has really like maternal mortality. That's still an issue. Um, I don't think my work has really changed anything for the better. Um, And I can't say that me being at WPO land was like Hmm. I don't know. I you'd be a little humble, I think. You know. A lot of people
1: were touched by the things that you've done. So speaking of the things that you've done, let's move on to what you'll be doing next. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So I'm not going to say the name of the place, but I I will be in Dallas. Uh, It's a nonprofit. I'll be doing communication. So I guess as some would say, I'm moving to the dark side. Hmm. Um, So um, really just a lot of social media stuff, kind of storytelling digitally, and uh, maybe a little bit of kind of working with media too.
1: Okay. Well, our listeners listeners are gonna miss you, and us here at the station will miss
2: you as well. Do you have any parting words for everyone? Um, just just keep doing it. Uh, just just keep it moving.
1: We're going to keep it moving, and we're going to keep doing it. Mr. Damon Mitchell has served as enterprise reporter for WPLN News for three years. Today is his last day at the station. Damon, best of luck to you, and thank you again for all your hard work,
2: my man. Thanks, Khalil.
1: We have to take a short break. When we come back, it's time to sing a simple song with some local songwriters. We'll learn how they approach the craft, what inspires them, and what they think of our city's songwriting community. Are you a songwriter in Music City? We want to hear from you. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Ekalona, and this is Nashville. Catching a performance at Brooklyn Bowl or the Ryman Auditorium, it's easy to become hypnotized by the people in the spotlight. After all, they've worked hard to develop their talents, and they're really putting on a show, but sometimes it's just the final step in a long process. Now, this is not a slight against lead singers with serious charisma, but for plenty of performers, it's the songwriter who gives them that chance to shine. And here in Nashville, your server, the woman behind the counter at the guitar shop, the person standing next to you in line at the grocery store, could be the writer behind your favorite song. Today, we're turning the spotlight to our city songwriters. I'd like to introduce my next guests. Henry Brill is a songwriter and producer with Cobalt Music Group, and Elisa Sun is a Nashville-based songwriter. Henry, Elisa, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to This is Nashville. Oh, thank you for having us. Thank you. So, Henry, let me start with you. I think a lot of people, when they imagine a songwriter, they imagine sitting alone on a on the floor with a guitar and a cigarette that's burnt nearly to the butt. Is that real? I mean, somewhat.
0: I think it it varies. There are there are different ways of approaching songwriting, and you know, in the case of someone like me, it's it tends to be going in and working directly with an artist and. Try to make sense of what they think about when they're sitting alone on the floor with a guitar and a cigarette, mm-hmm. and then you know, trying to breathe some life into that and help you know make them brave enough to say what they really want to say. Now, you write these songs in a professional setting. What is that like? Um, I try to make it feel as unprofessional as possible at all times. Okay. I, uh, you know, I like to I like to take whoever I'm working with for a beer or a coffee and you know, just talk uh, because. The most important thing to me is that uh, songs are honest, mm. um, and the best songs tend to be. Uh, so, you know, go to the pub or go to a coffee shop and just really get to know someone. And then I like to write in my house. I like or their house, you know, sitting on a couch and playing on
1: a piano and not feeling like it's too clinical. Ah, so you take this casual informal set, having a couple of beers sitting on the sofa and making a song.
0: Yeah, I mean also I, I work in writing rooms as well and, and my publishers are very gracious and give us space to work in when we want it and that could be really useful too. Um, but for me, I feel like people are best positioned to identify the most interesting things about their brain when they're the
1: most relaxed. Okay, so backing up a bit. How did you get into making music?
0: Um, I was an artist for years. so in the I'm from London and um, I was making my own music and performing as John Joseph Brill for years and years and years through my 20s and I got to the point where I was kind of burned out by that mm. and there was an artist in the UK called Jack Garrett and he asked me to help write his second record with him and it hadn't, I mean the story's a little longer than that but that's the gist of it and basically I never really thought about being a writer for other people mm. and Um, Or rather a writer with other people and I was I was very grateful for that opportunity And that led to me getting a publishing deal and they you know cobalt started putting me with more and more uh, Writers and artists and then people just started cutting songs and suddenly it was my job
1: Nice and um, I I couldn't be happier about it now Elisa. What was your journey to becoming a songwriter?
4: Uh, well for me uh, I I didn't start writing songs until a bit later. Uh, I I started when I was in my early 20s. Um, and then I didn't even really know that songwriting could be a career until probably uh, when I was about... Mm, before I moved here, which was in 2019. So the difference between an artist and a songwriter, I didn't even know what that was mm-hmm. uh, before I moved here. So... The idea of writing with people also was new to me. Um, it was a very Nashville thing that I had never really experienced before. So um, that was a really awesome thing to experience here. Um, and similarly, I think writing with people, I prefer to get to know the person first. It's very strange to just randomly get in a room with someone and just write a song with a stranger. Mm-hmm. So it's I think it's a very intimate and very vulnerable thing. So... It's important to get to know them
1: is songwriting what brought you here to Nashville
4: yes and I'm also an artist so um, I write for myself and with friends um, or for my friends also so I kind of do both
1: so speaking about your artistry you write R&B and jazz tunes yes. what do you love about those genres
4: ah uh, oh that's hard to describe um I think a lot of it just has to do with what I was raised listening to uh, I grew up with um, my mom, She's not a musician, but just always had music playing. Um, Who was she playing of, for you? Uh, a lot of Earth, Wind & Fire, mm-hmm. a lot of um, Stevie Wonder, uh, a lot of um, Tower of Power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really great taste, <laughs> um, but also like Day and um, like early Alicia Keys. Okay. Um, so things like that.
1: So, you know, some see Nashville as a country town. Yes. So how has it been navigating that scene when writing these songs and the genres that you love?
4: Uh, it's it's interesting. I think uh, there's definitely more than just country here. I think I moved here. Uh, I knew some people that lived here before I moved here who who definitely told me so and said, you know, country is not the only thing here. Um, it's It's true. There is more. Um, it is still very present, though. It's it's hard for me still. And I'm, I'm still relatively new to Nashville. I moved here about three years ago, so I'm still kind of feel like I'm figuring it out, especially after the pandemic or moving here right before the pandemic. Mm. Uh, but I think that there's a community for the kind of music I play. I do think it's smaller, but I think it is here.
1: Tell us briefly about your first impression when you got here of the songwriting community in Nashville?
4: Um, My first impression, um, uh, very welcoming. Um, I would say people are very open um, and a lot of people are willing to collaborate. Um, But yeah, I think it was hard for me specifically with like jazz or the kind of soul for me, what I play um, to find people that want to collaborate. I think uh, it was my first impression, honestly, it was very pop, very pop and like indie rock. But maybe that was just the spaces I happened to be in. But that was very much like the focus where I kind of felt like, oh, I don't know if this is my Mm. my thing. But, yeah.
1: Henry, you started, as you said, your music career in London and then you spent time in Los Angeles as well. So tell me what makes the Nashville songwriting scene, what makes it so different from these other places you've, you've worked?
0: It's vastly different um I think uh for one, it's a much more welcoming community. it's a much more and I, I think that in part has to do with geography. it's a much smaller city, so it's able to be a tangible community where you actually get to see everyone every day and run into people and um it's much easier to throw a house show together for your mates and you know um and at the same time, it's also and this isn't to be too much of a slight on LA or London, but I feel like. It's a much more supportive community. I feel like people are rooting for each other a lot more. Um, people still go to each other's shows. It's wild. <laughs> I, uh, and they don't always ask a guest list either. They might even That's buy important a ticket. right there. Um, and I, it just it struck me the moment I got here that there were a bunch of people who were all doing really interesting things, um, mainly outside of the country space, some in, in country, um, that were willing to, you know, just welcome someone who kind of wanted to do the same thing without feeling like they were being competed with.
1: Mm. It's much more collaborative than it is competitive, and I don't necessarily feel that way about LA. Mm-hmm. If if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kali Lake-Alona. We're talking this hour about the art and craft of songwriting with songwriters Henry Brill and Elisa Sun. So, Elisa, you know, how does the support from your peers, like you mentioned, you know, people being collaborative, Henry mentioned it as well, how does that aid you in your creative process?
4: Uh, well, um, I think it it's... It, very, very helpful to be surrounded by—honestly, yeah, the the most of the reason why I moved here is because I wanted to be surrounded by other songwriters and people who are doing what I'm doing, um, and that can be really life-giving. Um, it's also a tough industry, so it can be, uh, you know, when, when everyone's kind of burned out. <laughs> mm. That can be tiring, um, but it's very uh, inspiring to be surrounded by people who— um, are doing the same thing that I'm doing, yeah.
1: So I want to learn a little, a little bit more about how you write your songs. You know, what what environment is most comfortable for you to write in?
4: Uh, probably my house. <laughs> uh, I would say my house or a friend's house, um, and it's kind of hard to to say exactly when it happens, but um, it's it's generally. Lyrics might come first or a melody might come first, mm-hmm. um, and but usually in my house, I would say, is the okay. most comfortable place.
1: Now, I want to ask this question of both of you. Some people feel the muse at four in the afternoon. Some people feel it at three in the morning. What times are the best for you to write? Henry? I am complicated in the
0: way I write. I, uh, I like to gather ideas usually quite late at night, um, but not finish them. So that they're, because, you know, all of the things I'm doing are scheduled. Mm. So I'm usually starting at midday with an artist and working through the day with them, sometimes two in a day, um, one sometimes three in a day. Um, but, I, you know, I'd like to have ideas ready to go, at least as jumping off points, to spark conversation, spark ideas, spark musical ideas even. And so, you know, I'll save little snippets of melody or lyrical ideas, um and usually yeah usually they come come quite late at night okay okay elisa
4: yeah i it's it's super random for me and so much of creativity i believe is just showing up and making that commitment and that time so you know like sometimes it, it's good to set you know i i don't have um like when you have a specific time window where you're like this is the time I'm going to write and if something happens something happens and if it doesn't it doesn't i think that's often a good way to get because if you just i know for me if i just depend on oh it'll just happen like it won't happen if unless you really show up for it mm-hmm. yeah
1: they say they say showing up is 90% of the work i think that's right as well and i think i think a really important thing is play
0: as well like you have to take time to have fun with it and identify with making music in the way you used to when you were a kid Mm -hmm. um and because that's where a lot of the best ideas come from and
1: if you if you lose that connection with it then how very dull
5: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) you know okay so we've talked about how you all got into songwriting let's hear a little bit some of your work elisa this is one of your songs past noon let's take a listen digging those bossa nova vibes.
4: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Very much. So, tell us about that song.
4: Yes. Uh, so among the the genres that I grew up listening to was bossa nova. Uh, and I don't know what it is about bossa nova and just Brazilian music in general just really like oh, makes my heart feel mm. so mm-hmm. happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I speak Spanish. I don't I sing a few songs in Portuguese, but I don't speak it. Um, And I just started learning Bossa Nova songs like as when I got into songwriting. So when I was learning, um, I learned a lot of really tough jazz chords on guitar and just kind of started to get really into that. So I think I was just messing around with just some simple kind of uh, Bossa Nova chords for that song and just kind of plucking and mimicking what I was listening to at the time. A lot of that, I think, comes with songwriting what you're listening to at the time influences how you write. Um, So, and then at the time, I think I just really wanted to write a more, you know, a nice, fun, loving song about being in love. And yeah, kind (laughs) of happened that way.
1: Wonderful. Now, Henry, you've written songs across a wide variety of genres, from country to punk, including a number of tracks for the local band, The Thing with Feathers. Let's listen to one of those songs called Light's down low. You dig that. That feels like that song encapsulates like moments of the eighties, nineties, and contemporary music. What was it like working with Nashville based artist Nashville based artist writing that song? Oh great. I mean they are
0: really, really fun and really like a really good, exciting band who I think have a really exciting future ahead of them. They, you know, they seem to be growing and growing all the time and they're lovely lads. So I got I got hooked up with them actually through the guys who were producing the record, uh, Owen Lewis and Ben Kramer, who's also a wonderful Nashville artist called Old Sea Brigade. Um, And we spent a couple of days in the studio that they were recording at, and they played me sort of the loose ideas for those songs. And honestly, I mean, it all comes from them. Uh Like I said before, I'm not writing for them, I'm very much writing with them. And just, you know, kind of threading together the ideas they already had. And sometimes it's just useful to have a filter in the room, someone who can help you make sense of everything that's going on in your brain.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And so I sat down with Alex, the guitarist, and David, the singer, and we we sort of cobbled together the songs. They did a great job cobbling. Well, I I mean, I hope I did. They definitely don't need me now. The stuff they're writing right now is incredible. And and they're doing that
1: all on their own, and it's amazing. That's good stuff. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dig into the business side of songwriting and hear how songwriters can make a living in a changing music industry. Are you looking to break into the world of songwriting? What questions do you have? Leave us a tweet at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Le Colonna, and this is Nashville. The music industry can be deceptive. From the outside looking in, it can look like musicians are all living like rock stars. That perception is often not the case, like any industry. There are plenty of people working at many levels, with and without support. And songwriters in particular have their work cut out for them. It isn't easy to get a song published. And along the way, you've got to stay on guard so someone doesn't take advantage of you. That means you have to know how the songwriting and public in- publishing industry works. Not all songwriters have a manager or an attorney, so my next guest helps them learn as much as possible so they can protect themselves. Dave Pomeroy is president of the Nashville Musicians Association, AFM, Local 257. Dave, thanks for being here and welcome. This Is Nashville. Dave, let me ask you this. You're not just a union president, you're a songwriter and a musician with a whole career under your belt. And a song you wrote got picked up by Chet Atkins and Tommy Emmanuel. Let's listen to a little bit of that. It's called The Day the Finger Pickers Took Over the World.
5: was quite subtle and the mood low-key. The sky was overcast, you could hardly see, and the creatures all boogie to a different frequency, the day the finger-pickers took over the world, yeah.
2: Yeah, it happened one day, way back in the sticks, he picked up his guitar, but he had no pick, so with just a thumb and two fingers, he made up some licks, and finger-pickers took over the
5: world. Wonderful day with just a thumb and two fingers. He started to play without even knowing he was showing the way, and finger pickers took over this world. Yes, they did.
1: I love a song with good storytelling. So, you know, tell me, how did that song come to you, David? Well,
3: it's a very uh. Interesting story. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a long friendship and musical relationship with Guy Clark. Um, and Guy went to the Kerrville Folk Festival one year, and he came back and he called me up. And in a very serious voice, he said, uh, come on over to the office. I got something I need to play for you. And Guy Clark was not the type of person to be playing people other people's songs. So I, I sure enough, I went over there and he played me a song written by a lady named Emily Cates, and it was her playing the bass and singing, and the song was called The Day the Bass Players Took Over the World. And Guy knew, as as a longtime bass player, Guy knew that I would love that song. And so I worked it up, and I arranged it, and I wrote some additional lyrics and kind of made a whole different thing out of it and sent it to Emily Cates, and she made me a co-writer of the song.
1: That's fantastic. So how did it end and, and- Keep going, I'm sorry.
3: No, well, yeah. Well, with Chet and so and so I recorded it and it kind of gave me some notoriety in the in the bass world as a you know, as a song like that is called The Bass Players Took Over the World Could Do. And it led to me creating a all bass orchestra and various things. But I I was playing at the Exit Inn on a Monday night. I was doing a, a thing called Monday Night Madness, kind of a variety show every Monday. And and I had met Chet and done a television special and some recording with him. Which I was just absolutely, you know, flabbergasted to get to work with Chet and get to know him and, you know, think of him as a friend. Um, so he was getting ready to come out of retirement and start playing shows around Nashville. He ended up at Cafe Milano, which is now no longer there, but he was looking for a place to play and he knew that I was playing at the Exit Inn, and so he came down to see me play and I did that song, and. He called me the next day and, and said, send over the lyrics to that double spaced. Hmm. And I didn't hear anything for months. And I just thought, well, that could never happen. And then I got a call from the, the the label wanting the publishing information. And I said, you mean he recorded it? And and they said, yes. I said, well, what's the album called? And they said, you don't know? And I said, no, I don't know. And they said, the album's called The Day Finger Pickers Took Over the World. So it was the title track of what became Chet's final album.
1: Wow. That's an amazing story. So, you know, tell me how did, how did all this experience that you have in the industry, how did that lead you to become an active member of a musician's union?
3: Well, I was a military kid. We, we grew up, we bounced around a fair amount and spent a fair amount of time in England. And I kind of got inspired in England after the Beatles and all of that to, to just enjoy music. My dad was a music fan. Uh, had a big record collection. But I, I started playing the string bass in school orchestra and then decided that I really wanted to rock out. And so I switched to bass guitar and played in bands all through high school and two years of college. And I went back over to Europe for a year and lived in London for a year uh, and you know, got a work permit and played in a bunch of bands and a uh, very uh, culturally enriching time. It was mid-70s. Uh, and so I moved to Nashville as a rock and roll jazz bass player, wanted to play lots of bass solos. And, and I, my first job was with a guy named Sleepy Labeef, a rockabilly guy who taught me a lot about roots music. And, you know, he could go from Ernest Tubb to Muddy Waters and, and, and turn it into a medley. He was amazing. And then I fell into this situation with guy working with Guy Clark and Billy Joe Shaver. And that was really my introduction to songwriting in that sense in that like so simple yet so powerful uh guy especially just was mind-boggling so i suddenly and then i ended up with don williams for a long time but during that time somebody said hey kid you ought to join the union Mm -hmm. and i'm like okay what's that i had no idea but i joined and very early on in my career with don we played giant stadium in the meadowlands and i thought man i've made it i'm playing this meadow and stadium man this is great then about a month later a friend calls and says hey man turn on channel four you're on tv and unbeknownst to me they had filmed it and don had the number one country single and it was um casey Kasem's american top 40 Mm -hmm. so they showed the clip and i thought man it's incredible i'm on tv and then a check for a thousand dollars arrived and then the next month it was still the number one single and they did it again. And I got another thousand dollars and I thought, man, this union's pretty cool. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that is still really what intellectual property is, which is getting paid more than once for something, which is what songwriting is what musicians who play on, on records have. So I got more involved with the union when they were kind of, it was getting kind of antiquated and, you know, there was, things were changing and the union wasn't really shifting until I got more involved uh, you know, being on the executive board and, and then, uh, in the late 2000s, you know, I'd had a really good run as a studio musician. I, you know, I got, I, I did the road for about 15 years and then I was able to make the transition to being a full-time studio player mm-hmm. and writer and doing my own stuff on the side. But it suddenly became really apparent in the, in the mid to late two thousands that the union needed to change or it was going to become obsolete. Well, well, and I wanted know, to- was at a I want to talk yeah, to you about so that I real quick. In. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so I, in. but
1: I do want to ask you, you know, people don't know how that folks in the music industry, a lot of people don't know how they get paid. I- explain to us the pay structure, how it works for songwriting and publishing, particularly with the advent of streaming services and digital music distri- distribution.
3: Well, it's complicated. There's no question that the demise of physical product. Uh, you know, or with CDs, you know, being virtually obsolete and, and you know, uh, small amounts of vinyl being pressed up. So, you know, it used to be in the old days of songwriter, you know, if if, if artists were selling millions of, you know, uh, half a million, million records, even if you just had an album cut, you could make a pretty nice taste. The real money is in radio play, which, of course, airplay, you know, goes through BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC which is how if your songs are being played on the radio, that's the mechanism there. For musicians, because unfortunately, AMFM does not pay musicians labels or artists. Uh, it's very backwards. We have legislation in Congress to try to fix it. We're the only countries in the, the only other countries in the world that don't pay uh, musicians and, and artists uh, for AMFM terrestrial radio are Iran, North Korea, and China. Mm. And everywhere else in the world, they pay. And we have hundreds of millions of dollars overseas that these countries, their collection agencies hold it because we don't pay, you know, we don't pay Germany for the German music played on American radio. So we don't get our money for American music being played on German radio. And you can guess which one might be bigger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is complicated, but now with satellite radio, Sirius XM, uh, musicians, backup musicians and singers get paid. Through sound exchange, which handles the, you know, a lot of the, not the Spotify non-interactive streaming, but I mean, interactive streaming, but the, what they call non-interactive, which is primarily Sirius XM and Pandora. So 50% uh, in in that equation, sound exchange collects about a billion dollars a year. They pay out most of that. Eight eight fifty nine hundred million dollars, and fifty percent goes to the owner of the recording. Most of the time, the label. Forty five percent goes to the artist and/or producer. Uh, if the producer cuts himself into the deal, and five percent goes to the backup musicians and singers. And that fund distributed sixty two million dollars last year.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, Dave, I'm really sorry. I've got to break in here. We only have quite a few seconds left of running this I understand. I, yeah i, I want to thank you so I'm much it's long, so I'm mu-
3: sorry i'm lo- i know i'm long-winded <laughs>
1: hey this is a lot of important information that i think songwriters and aspiring songwriters need to know that was dave pomeroy president of the nashville musicians association afm local 257 he was joined by henry brill songwriter and producer for cobalt music and elisa sun musician, and R&B artist and songwriter. Thanks to you all for being with us. It is Friday. That means it's time for me to hop out of the studio and ride shotgun with a fellow Middle Tennessean. Today, I'm riding with songwriter and producer Luke Dick. He's written songs for Miranda Lambert, The High Women, Dirks Bentley, Casey Musgraves, Kit Moore. You get the idea. We took a ride through some of the hidden streets deep in Englewood and talked about the fulfillment of artistic expression.
5: It's it's hard to keep going when you feel like you're good, or but then if nobody else in the industry is feeling like you're good, yeah. then it's like, okay, what am I doing? Is, am I, is this a is this a a passion or a hobby mm. that I have to find another job in order to that's it, going to make me money? The idea that art is going to be your living is. It's always felt a little privileged to me, even you know, even now. Um, to me, I feel I don't know why. You know, it it feels like you're getting away with something um, to make a living. I, I understand that. Yeah. This is you know, this is kind of chancy. Me driving around my boot thing. If I start talking. Or looking out the window or doing anything but driving, I start swerving around. She says, You gotta pull over and let me. Oh, wow. Only <laughs> <laughs> go on trips. What's the worst thing Squishly. that's happened on one of these drives? Has somebody bashed into a gate or anything? You no, get... nothing like that. What's okay. the. Nothing
1: really bad.
5: Um, Good for you. Yeah, they've all been pretty cool. I really want to l- look at you guys when I'm telling you stuff, but it's difficult. I don't yeah, want, as you're driving. Yeah, I, don't I get wanna, it. I don't want us to die. Yeah, um, neither, uh, neither do I. <laughs> oh, we got a rainbow. Holy shit. Hey. All uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see if it's got a full rainbow. Half, right. it's going all the way. Kind of looks like we have a full We got a full rainbow. That's Amazing. Awesome. Rainbow over East Nashville. <laughs> My publisher, who's my basically my partner in my career, has um, always said, do the thing that you want to do, do the thing that you do, you know, and also do a lot of it, right, because publishers want you to write a lot, yeah. um, but I, I, I can't do that. Uh, I can't, you know, it's like I write, I don't know, I'd say probably... Maybe fifty songs a year, or something like that. I don't okay. Know. And um, almost a song a week. Yeah, about a song. I probably average a song a week, and that'd be like whole compositions, whatever, because you're writing it with other people. You know, I'm supposed to write twenty-four whole compositions a year, or something like that. Um, and. and anymore i don't even record them if i don't like them you know it's Ah. like uh because if i don't like it probably nobody else is gonna like if i don't think much of it you know Mm -hmm. other people aren't gonna like it but anyway i was just writing stuff that i liked writing stuff that i loved and so you're trying to follow your own intuition and then that worked i grew up playing music just making my own stuff, right? And you exist on an island, it doesn't matter what you make. Nirvana was awesome already, but Kurt Cobain didn't have to be a songwriter who was making music and on a Venn diagram trying to serve other people and serve himself at uh-huh. the same time. They were just being a band, you know? Uh-huh. And, and that's a, a really awesome path, but that's not the path of the producer, songwriter, um, Artist, kind of, sort of, all in one person. You have there. There's not even boxes you have to check off. Is that you have to create songs that are going to um, resonate with other artists and stuff too.
1: With Miranda Lambert and yeah. the others, you know? So when you're writing this song, as soon as you start to get those tingles and you're like, oh, I got something that's hot. Yeah, yeah. This is gonna be perfect for Miranda or that person. Is it just more of hearing them as the artist over it or knowing who they are as a person and understanding how they may resonate and reflect with the song? I singing? think
5: more. it's more about them per- like that, more about them personally. Um, and knowing them personally, especially over the conversations that you may have had with them over the years. At some point in your career, when you move into a community of writers or an artistic community that you're operating within, is that you have to get over this idea that somebody knows something more than you, that there is an intuition inside of you, um, to try to do what it is we're passionate about. If you have a voice and if you have an impulse, you know? Yeah. um, You follow that thread and see where it leads you. I like this. It's like the Tao of the songwriter. (laughs) If you're not walking into music thinking it's going to be your financial answer to life, it can be an answer to your creative soul. And whatever that looks like. I'm a little bit steady, but still a little bit I'm a little bit heaven, but still a little bit flesh and
1: bone. That's Dirk's Bentley singing Burning Man. Our friend Luke Dick wrote this song for Bentley and it went on to hit number two on US country airplay charts. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Julie Height and Celia Gregory. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at this is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna.
5: We'll see you next week, everybody, and be good to each other.